0: i <laughs>
1: This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking about the business of carbon and what greenhouse gases mean for the way we pay for energy, and if you want to skip the monologue and head straight to the interview, that begins at 3.35. I started this podcast with a very clear idea of what it wasn't going to be, and that's another climate change program masquerading as a podcast about energy. That's been done to death, but greenhouse gases are joined at the hip to almost any discussion about energy. So the question for me was, how do I do a greenhouse gas episode with a business-focused slant? The answer was to do an episode about those who are putting a price on carbon emissions, essentially monetizing climate change, if you will. And it's fascinating. How do you put a price on an inert gas that one of my earlier guests once called plant food? I've gone into this podcast trying to be as agnostic about climate change as I can. I'm here to talk about how to make energy, not how to turn it off. At this point, My view is, look, I accept that carbon concentration is rising. I accept that weather trends appear to be rising, but there is no consensus on what needs to be done about it. And that, frankly, is where I leave the subject to the millions who are far more interested in this issue and choose to focus on cool energy technologies instead. For years, I had resisted the idea of a price on carbon, but our guest today is a pragmatic guy who explained his reasoning behind carbon pricing in a way that I could understand. When I had time to digest it further, I came up with my own analogy. So Ashley, my wife, and I briefly lived in Pittsburgh before moving down to Charlotte. Nearly every year, this guy would come to the Steel City. Are we feeling good, that's back tonight? Yep. Kenny Chesney would play the stadium at Heinz Field, but his fans would create a mess.
0: garbage, and arrests. Two days after the Kenny Chesney concert at Heinz Field and people are still talking about the mayhem and the mess.
1: Yeah, Kenny's fans would f up Pittsburgh. Last year, the city picked up 48 tons of trash and arrested seven people. In 2013, they arrested 70 people. You get the idea. Carbon pricing advocates are a lot like those who would say that every Kenny Chesney fan who buys a ticket should pay a fee for the city workers who need to clean up after them. Now contrast that to these fans <laughs> Swift has also played Heinz Field in Pittsburgh, yet the fans of this Pennsylvania native do not tailgate, and there's little, if any, mess left behind, save for the Kleenexes from crying along with Taylor's breakup songs. Taylor Swift, for carbon pricing advocates, is a lot like carbon-free energy sources. There's no residual cleanup, and so the pricing is more in line with the true costs. And that, my friends, is how I explain carbon pricing. Our guest today is Andrew Fielding, president of GT Environmental Finance, located in Austin, Texas. They also have an office in New Orleans not too shabby. I first came across this company about seven years ago through one of their employees at the time, Jason Ternian, a fellow LSU alumni. I connected with Jason through LinkedIn and we met for a few drinks at the now defunct 219 bar. I was fascinated by the company's business model. Nothing really came about it after that meeting, so it's a blast to see how encounters like that can be productive years later. Jason has moved on since then, but GT is still going strong, and when I connected with Andrew, he was happy to oblige. Andrew is is a fascinating guy. He and I could talk about energy issues and policy for hours if time permitted, and everything he says is very profound. It was hard to keep the conversation focused on carbon pricing for this interview. I don't get back to Texas as much as I'd like, so we had to settle for a phoner on this interview. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Andrew Fielding. We're talking with Andrew Fielding with GT, Environmental Finance. And uh, Andrew, tell everybody out there, what do you guys do day-to-day?
0: Our day-to-day mandate, if you will, is we wear several different hats. We're involved in the environmental commodities market, which is a wholesale market. We basically serve many different functions, one of which is we're an institutional broker. So if you will, a traditional voice broker that puts together people in the RPS markets, which is the renewable portfolio standard, so that is wind power, solar power, whatever a given state would mandate to try to lessen carbon and sort of be a little bit more sustainable. There are, as far as actively traded renewable markets in the U.S., there's really less than a dozen, a lot of them in the Northeast. So on a daily basis, got several of my partners working in those markets, and each state has its own mandate that it's created. Previously, Texas still officially has a renewable portfolio standard. but they hit their targets way ahead of schedule because of the plentiful wind resource in West Texas. They were able to do that. In addition to that, GT and its project partner, Trinity Carbon Management, have several voluntary climate action reserve projects where we partner with different asset owners, landfill asset, waste management companies, where we do beneficial use landfill gas project. We have many flare projects where, in essence, there were small facilities. There was no driver other than the carbon in finance, so to speak, or, or the money to get people to do the right thing, so to speak. And then lastly, we do advisory. You know, I like to say it's ESG, environmental social governance, but we work with different companies and it's something that's sort of new because previously really our customers were engaging, but they were engaging from the point of view of environmental commodities and specific projects. And we've kind of gone full circle and we saw this really driven from people like Silicon Valley type companies and, and European companies companies and We're pushing to say, hey, what does our carbon footprint look like? We've been working with different companies and different ideas. Specifically, we're looking at assisting a startup that's looking at potential housing in the emerging markets. And so we want them to consider putting a certain portion of those houses or homes to hit a certain standard as far as being green, efficient, uh, solar, that sort of thing. So we look at that. That's pretty much it.
1: How do these deals usually get started? Do you find opportunities? Do your organizations come to
0: you seeking help. Both. Both, absolutely. But I would say that quite honestly, you have to be out there looking. You turn over a lot of things to try to find something that has potential. And again, it really depends on what your mandate is or what specifically what market you're looking at. My two partners, they're on the phone all the time. They're always looking to best provide value for players in a given market. There are a lot of opportunities out there. And quite honestly, you can make your head spin because you don't know where to start. The other side of the coin, there's also a lot of time wasting out there. So you have to be very careful careful. You have to filter and try to stick with people that are committed and that have a reason, you know, and you have to make sure that they are fully involved in the process so that they don't just drop the process and and waste your time.
1: Tell us about some of the projects that you're most proud of.
0: There is a landfill in southwestern Louisiana in Acadiana called St. Landry Parish. And it's very unique. Well, it's a unique part of the country. It's great people. But the gentleman who runs the landfill there and the solid waste disposal board for St. Landry parish. They're very unique for more sort of agricultural area of the country. And so they've been extremely progressive. They've embraced for good business sake and on behalf of the people of the parish. I'll give you an example. They were one of the first small landfills to embrace putting the gas collection system. And there's no homes for miles away from that landfill, but yet they were on top of that to be good stewards for the area. And then once they did that, the state of Louisiana began to offer grants to dip your toes on innovative things. And so they became, I would say for a small landfill, the first landfill to actually create from landfill gas, so from a liability, a waste product, they created compressed natural gas which they fueled their vehicles. And since then, we've doubled or tripled in size. And now they've built the skid out. It's even larger. And now they're supplying the fuel, clean natural gas, from landfill gas, that fuel is being supplied to the waste haulers who collect trash and then bring it to the landfill. In that particular parish, they bid out to different waste companies to do the actual collection. Part of that process was basically they had to be involved in this project. In this case, it's Waste Connections, which originally was progressive waste, and they signed on the line to do that, and they've been a big part of it. When we look at renewable penetration in the United States, renewable uh, energy, okay, renewable power, if you look at what was going on in the United States and how many assets we had that were quote-unquote green. And I don't mean large hydro. It was pretty small, 2003, 2004. And we basically had started in the UK. We got green bug over there. We came back to focus on the U.S. because we felt that it was moving behind and we wanted to kind of push ahead. And if you look at what the penetration is today, with the help of a lot of different people, states especially, the previous administration, the Obama administration pushed, very hard to move sustainable energy. If I look at all this, where we started and where we are in less than fifteen years, it's pretty impressive. We have a lot of work to do and we have a lot of transparency that we have to push. But I think that you know we can be proud of what we've done. And it's been a hodgepodge. It hasn't been a universal approach.
1: Are many of the organizations that you're engaging voluntarily seeking greenhouse gas offsets, or is it more
0: mandated? If we're talking about a renewable portfolio standard and we're talking about a loads, you know, load serving entity someone who's providing power to the customers of a given state, they're mandated. They have to buy X percent. But then you can juxtapose that where they have voluntary programs. Again, Silicon Valley is a good example. We're talking about a couple hundred companies there, a couple giants, household names that you know about. They have created their own mandates. So that's, quote-unquote, voluntary. And the ironic thing there is, in many cases, they've also capped a raise in their future power prices. Because right now, in certain parts of the country, we actually see where gas at the margin, it's natural gas, had initially led this whole pricing down, you know, downward spiral, really. And now you have a situation where some solar for peak and most definitely wind in Texas is actually capping the price of power. When I came home from 14 years abroad in 2004, all I heard is can't be done, can't be done, can't be done, Mm, it's being done. It's being done and it's being done cost-effectively, it's being done and it's generating jobs, it's being done and money is being spent in the communities who buy the power. For me, green is American. It's domestic, it's about supporting our people. I still for the life of me don't understand why we're talking about this whole coal issue when in fact coal still dominates 35% of the market and all the poor miners that have lost their jobs, why aren't they being retrained for the green economy? These are hardworking people. We can do it. These aren't people looking for a handout. And quite honestly, they would provide value, all of them. For
1: several years, it seemed like there was going to be a national price on carbon. What happened?
0: It's, to me, the biggest mystery. And i probably lost more money than i made because I could not believe that a country that puts a price on free trade of goods would actually want to mandate tax or do something else. But the political change after the good work of Kyoto was done, take all the spin out of it, if you read the Kyoto Protocol, and if you look at what the Clinton administration and all the bureaucrats and other people from the UN who built, first of all, we're talking about less than 40, 50 pages, okay? If I look at an American bill today for anything for carbon, we're talking thousands. I think the first version of McCain Lieberman was maybe 75 pages, which again, was almost double the size of Kyoto. Point that I'm trying to make is, is that the dysfunction of American politics, less so on state, more so on federal level, is really why carbon never went anywhere. Because certain groups on the left and certain groups on the right, and the roles kind of switched because in the 90s, the early 90s, the free market conservatives were in favor of trading. And then we sort of had this thing, which I call the lobbyization of America, where everyone became essentially bought and paid for. And the hydrocarbons, which were the dominant, and they still are dominant, For the most part, decided this wasn't in their interest. And all I'd like to say is how'd that work out for coal? They should have embraced it. They should have been a part of it. And they should have realized that they could have moved forward with it and still built businesses. And quite honestly, they could have owned part of that business. But again, that's just my opinion. I think that we see a price in California. It's on a huge market. We're not actively involved in doing the CCAs, which are the tags that you trade in California for the affected sources. Got Reggie, which is not really that robust. It's a low price. But remember, it's only of the power production part of that economy. And a lot of that is covered in the renewable portfolio standard, which is a much higher price. Specifically, to answer your question, though, I don't know if we're ever going to see anything on a national basis. I just don't see it in the political. Political cards right now. And I think the best way to go around it is what Christopher Dufour calls stealth carbon. So that through the RPS or through the RFS, okay, Renewable Fuel Standard for Transport, in looking to decarbonize, to embrace a low-carbon fuel standard for power, and to embrace a low-carbon fuel standard for transport, I think we'll get what we're looking for. And quite honestly, we're going to drive innovation. You want to drive innovation, you want to drive an economy, it's not chasing yesterday's work. It's moving forward. Which is to say we ignore yesterday's work. And by the way, I don't consider infrastructure yesterday's work. I just consider looking at technology from 30 years ago as yesterday's work.
1: Let's talk about the national energy portfolio. You talked about coal earlier. Do you think we're at the right
0: mix? I think that's a difficult question because, first of all, when we say we're at the right mix, what's our time frame? If you talk about building an asset, you know, the time horizon could be anywhere from 15 to 20 years to 50 years. And so it's very, very difficult. This is kind of like what I used to call Queen. Mary in the New York Harbor. If you've ever seen the QE2 go down the Hudson River, it's like an amazing feat. And you say, how's that thing going to turn around? How do you turn around something? And I think, in many ways, President Obama did more for the markets. Now, did he hurt coal? Absolutely. But please remember that coal was at 52% of the market in terms of generation of power. And that, from a portfolio standard, was a very risky endeavor. The reason why coal was at 52% was because there was no price on carbon. So, in essence, you could pollute for free or you could send the CO2 up. But anyone who was a free market economist Knows that you've got to put a price on free goods. It isn't free. Having said that, there was a reason that most people went to coal. A, it was domestic. B, it was less volatile in price. Natural gas had all sorts of other issues, right? But coal was simple. Coal it out of the ground, put it on a train. And many of those contracts were much less volatile in price, and it was the cheapest to deliver. The problem was it didn't really work well in densely populated areas because you had a lot of cars and you had a lot of other sources of pollution. Back to your question. Do you think we're at the right level? I have a tendency to say the following. Coal, I think, continues to go down unless we find a cost-effective technological breakthrough. I think when you look at places like the upper Midwest where coal plants are in the middle of nowhere and there is enough forests or other natural sequesters of carbon, I think that this allows for a little bit of leeway there. I would like to see renewables across the country hit that 25%. How you break up the rest in terms of coal and natural gas and nuclear is anyone's guess. The real smart money also knows one thing, and that is gas will eventually go up in price. The bubble eventually will come out. And whether it's five years or 10 years, it doesn't matter. Because if you're building a gas plant, it's going to be around for 20 to 30 years. So the real question is, what do we think the most cost-effective portfolio is for the country?
1: Let's talk about the different states. I think a few of the states out west are considering carbon taxes. We'll see what happens there. But how would a carbon tax work if the rest of the country doesn't have one? If
0: you want the answer to that, just look at taxation. So could... Would a carbon tax affect commerce or the flight, so to speak, from one state to another? Absolutely. Which is why they should have a national carbon tax. I think you should have the right to either trade in a cap and trade market with a project interface, or pay the carbon tax. And you have to declare it in advance. You can't game the market, so to speak.
1: Andrew, what would a carbon tax actually pay for? Where would the revenue from a tax go?
0: Depends on the proposals, yeah. Specifically, the Baker proposal was that it was going to go back into uh, Social Security, but you could use it for a number of things. Quite honestly, the general fund is probably the safe bet, and a lot of times then they sort of horse-trade the money, so money that will go to industries that are unduly affected by the carbon tax to be spent on what they call the scoping. Scoping means what's our target, what's the reduction, and how do we get there? This is the way you do it. It's a top-down approach. It's nothing new. It's been done in the EU since 1999. The Kyoto Protocol was written with these sort of things in mind in 1996, 1997, to say that, oh, we've got to do all these things. We know what to do. The spin is keeping everybody from reality, unfortunately. What is the ultimate goal
1: of carbon pricing? What real greenhouse gas reductions
0: would people be expecting from that? You can look at it from any number of metrics, but the best way to look at it is what's it going to take and in what time frame to A, stabilize the parts per million, the CO2 in the atmosphere, and how long is this going to take? We all know that some of these things take 100 years, right, to be realized. So where are we going to get most of our bank for our buck locally and internationally? We're headed to uncharted territory. Is it too late? I don't know. I really don't know. To me, I see everything that we're approaching right now as innovation and the pursuit of efficiency. Again, if you put a price on a free good that's just being used for free... If there is no price on things, people will take advantage. That is why these things need to be monetized, so to speak.
1: Let's talk about how this works out internationally. And I think a lot of people out there are wondering, how do these countries who self-impose carbon pricing stay competitive when countries like India, Saudi Arabia have no plans for a carbon
0: regime on the books? Your question is, how do they compete? And the answer is, very carefully. (laughs) They have to be aware. If you look at a country like India, or if you look at a country, for example, China is a better example. India still has such intense poverty, and so much of India already is choking on its own emissions. What we really need is everybody to embrace, at least to to the best of their ability. We, in the United States, are in the best position, as is Europe, because we're post-industrial which isn't to say we shouldn't have industry, but a lot of our good innovation when moving forward pollutes a hell of a lot less. It emits less CO2. And so we should be driving. We should be driving this thing.
1: Probably one of the most difficult questions I'm going to bring out to you, Andrew. There are probably people out there listening to this who are thinking, I'm going to have to pay a tax on a gas that may or may not lead to calamity, and I can't even expect the rest of the world to play along, what would you say to those people?
0: Yeah, I would say, specifically, I think that the rest of the world is going to play along. And I think if you're talking about a developing country like India, where some people live on a few pennies a day, I mean, let's get real. What was the last price you paid per gallon for gasoline? And do you realize right now that if you had an electric car, if you charged it at your house, it'd be in the region of like 25 cents a gallon. So if we're really talking about, I don't want to pay this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. Okay, so what do you tell me? You tell me the price matters? If price matters, why the hell aren't you screaming for an electric car? Why aren't you screaming for a natural gas car? So again, if you really know the prices of these things, you realize the arguments are very weak. And quite honestly, what it's really about is the big boys who pay a lot of taxes and have a lot of lobbyists are going to drive what they're going to drive. And by the way, I don't blame them. What's missing from the equation is common-sense leadership, nonpartisan leadership. If you embrace low-carbon fuel standard and efficiency and innovation, and you take care of your people, where are you losing?
1: All right, Andrew, I'm going to finish up with my little lightning round. What first comes to mind when you hear these different energy sources? uh, Natural gas.
0: Transition. Crude oil. Historic, very important still. Nuclear. Risk. Coal. Historic.
1: Biofuels.
0: Interesting.
1: Wind. Success
0: and offshore still to come. Solar. Outstanding.
1: Hydroelectric.
0: Outstanding within limits. Geothermal excellent efficient more of the country should be behind it
1: electric vehicles
0: the way forward
1: nuclear fusion
0: to be discovered
1: (laughs) (laughs) very good andrew fielding gt environmental finance thank you so much for your time
0: my pleasure jay
1: There you have it, my interview with Andrew Fielding, president of GT Environmental Finance. And what did I say? When this guy starts rolling, he can tell you a thing or two. A little more about Andrew's company. They started out as GT Energy in 2000. You may have heard Andrew say something about living abroad. They started the company in London as European gas brokers. Two years later, they opened an office in New Orleans. And today they also have an office in Austin, which is where Andrew is located. And over those years, the The company has structured over 1,000 deals on both sides of the Atlantic as either renewable energy certificates, renewable identification numbers are carbon offsets. Special thanks to Andrew as well as Jason Tonian for meeting me all those years ago. All interviewees are sent the raw and completed podcast the week of release to confirm they've been fairly represented. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. You can find pictures on Instagram at hostenergy. My email is host at energy-cast.com and the website is energy-cast.com. That wraps up episode eight. Please join us next week when we discuss energy policy in the new administration. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.